You are listening to the Sharpen Podcast. My name is Ashley and I'm your hostess and creator of the show. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Designed and developed in the Swiss Alps, Mammut has been making the finest alpine equipment since the 1860s. Driven by a continuous quest for innovation, Mammut's technical clothing, footwear, climbing gear, avalanche safety, and alpine equipment are distinguished by the highest quality, functionality, and safety. They embody Swiss technology and perfection. Mammut, absolute alpine. Thanks to Gnarly Nutrition for signing on to sponsor this episode of the Sharpen Podcast. Gnarly Nutrition offers a full line of all-natural, clean sports nutrition products that don't just boost your performance, but taste great as well. So whether you are climbing routes, summiting peaks, bouldering hard problems, running and biking mountain trails, or training in the gym, Gnarly was built to fuel you. All American Alpine Club members get a 45% discount at gonarly.com. Just log into your AAC member profile, grab your discount code, and go to gonarly.com to redeem your code at checkout. Thank you, as always, to the Colorado Hourbound School and Health IQ. Okay, so this episode, we're going back to California, back into the Yosemite Valley. Um, and I welcome to the show Jonathan and Alex, and I'll go ahead and let them introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Alex uh, from San Diego. I've been climbing for about 10 years, uh, father of two here in San Diego, and uh, I own my own marketing company. Awesome. And um, my name is Jonathan Wachtel. Uh Before I introduce myself, uh, again, Ashley, thanks for having us. Um, I'm a big advocate of uh, climber education, safety, so I really appreciate you taking the initiative um, and the American Alpine Club providing you with a platform um, to do stuff like this. Um, that allows folks like Alex and I to come share our stories and lessons learned and in hopes uh, other climbers will learn from kind of our incident. Um, anyway, I'm Jonathan Walker. I'm originally from West Virginia, uh, husband, father of one. I'm an active duty naval officer, climbing 14 years, currently the co-chair of the American Alpine Club San Diego chapter. And then just because it might relate to this incident, um, I'm also an AMJ single pitch instructor, and I spent some time on the San Diego Mountain Rescue Team recently. Okay, and then last year you decided you wanted to climb the northwest face of Half Gnome. So why don't you go ahead and start us off with a story? Um, so in October 2017, about six months ago, um, Alex and I had decided, well, weeks before that, we had decided that we were going to go climb the regular northwest face of Half Gnome. Um, and then that weekend came upon us, uh, Alex and a couple of friends were in the park and you guys were climbing for about two days already. Yeah. We were, we were there for about a week prior to the, you showing up. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I started, uh, driving up Friday evening, arrived at about 10 AM on Saturday morning. Um, we met at, uh, Upper Pines campground, uh, for kind of like a gear check before we started up the. Uh, two-plus-mile approach up the desk labs. Um, and we started that about noon, again, on Saturday. Uh, we estimate that took us probably about four hours. Um, and then we, once we got up there, we climbed the first two pitches, um, um, kind of on-site free. Um, we, we were looking to free climb everything up to 11A, 
Um, anyway, we climbed the first two pitches, uh, left a fixed 70-meter rope um, to ascend the following morning. Uh, we wrapped down, had dinner, and then babied at the base. Um, and then the next morning, we yeah. we ascended the ropes, um, kind of packed our gear again, ascended the ropes, and then I uh, was anxious to take the first pitch, so I took the first pitch, uh, which was pitch three. Um, so I started up the pitch. It's a pretty mellow, mellow pitch, and so I was kind of cruising up pretty quick. And then I was going directly under where I thought I should be, and then um, I ended up moving left just because it was easier ground. So I went left, and when I was left, <clears throat> I was like, oh, I think I should be back right. So I looked back at the way I came, and I was like, no, nah, I need to go. Let me go up first. And this is after I placed a piece of pro. I was probably about 10 feet above my protection at this point. Mm. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go back. I need to go back right above my protection and get back to where I should be. So, But I moved up onto like a block. So I moved up on, I moved up, and then, and then right again. And when I did that, I realized that there was no place to place pro right there. So now I'm looking at about 15 feet-ish above my protection, but I need to move, keep moving up. So I moved up. It's pretty mellow ground. I wasn't even really nervous at this point. I was pretty calm because – it was like 5'8", five, 5'9", five, climbing, so I was cruising, yeah. moving through. And the day before, you had pre-climbed the 10C, the first pitch. Yeah, so, so I felt comfortable with yeah. it. And then um, I get up another about another body length. So now I'm sitting at about 23, something like that, above my protection. So I, I, and it's in the back of my mind. I realize I'm that high above my protection. I'm like thinking about it. I'm like, okay, I'm pretty up here now. I need to play something like right now. 23 cool. feet above your last piece of pro? Yes, so I'm like, okay, I really need to play something. So at that point, I I look up and I see the anchor, and I'm like, oh, the anchor's right there. Let me play something right here, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna clip it in, and I'm gonna get to the anchor, and I'm gonna be done. So I put my hand in the crack, and I reached down to look at my gear, what I was gonna place, and my and the placement was gonna be solid. It was a nice little parallel crack, no problem. And at some point, something happened where I lost my balance, and I'm not sure what happened exactly. We don't know if it was rock, slip. I, I basically just slipped. I don't really know. Um, but I knew I lost my balance. And I had, I'm not, I'm also not very comfortable or used to climbing with a heavy pack. So I remember when I lost my balance, it would have been something that I normally would have recovered from. Uh, just kind of like a, like a foot check and then I recovered. But because of the backpack, I remember my head going farther back than I than it would have normally done. And it threw off my balance, and my hand ripped from the crack, and my right foot blew at that kind of simultaneous, or my right foot blew, and then my hand rips, right? So at that point, I was like, I, I knew I was falling. I was like, I'm falling. Like, so at that point, I was like, I committed to the fall, and I pushed away from where I was, just instinctively, like I've been doing for the last you know years of falling. Like you just push away, and you kind of have a nice little fall right but I was so high obviously so I pushed away and when I pushed away I was looking down as I was falling and I could see my feet falling downward and I hit an initial ledge I, I believe we're not positive on how far down that ledge was but I believe it was about 30 feet ish and I landed on my feet I landed directly on both feet and when I did that the impact of the land whipped my head back and I broke my L1 vertebrae I didn't know at the time, but I broke my back with that, and then I broke my foot when I hit the ledge, which when I on my left foot. So when I broke my left foot, it made me collapse to the left. And when I collapsed to the left on this ledge, 
I landed on my wrist. When I did that, <clears throat> it broke my wrist, and I rolled off that ledge. And now I'm upside down. So now I'm falling upside down, and I'm also wondering why I'm still falling, even though I, you know, I thought that the distance was done. And, and so I'm kind of, as I'm falling, I'm looking for my rope because I'm kind of thinking it got severed. And I'm like, why am I still falling? And I'm upside down. I'm falling still, and I'm wondering how much long I'm going to – and there's so much time. It feels like there was so much time for me to, like, think about all this as it was happening. And then finally the rope catches, and, and it whips me over, flips me up, and puts me upright, and puts me in eye contact of Jonathan. And we kind of just made eye contact, and Jonathan was like, holy crap. <laughs> we just looked at each other, and I was like – he's like, you doing all right? I'm like, I think so. And um, he's like, man, like, what happened? We, we were kind of having a little discussion, and I wasn't really talking a lot. I was kind of just, like, shocked, really. And then very, you know, happy that the rope worked, that everything connected, that, that I, you know, that obviously I was upright. and Still on the I, rope? Yeah, still on the rope. And eye contact with Jonathan. And, and there was no, like, you know, bursting bloodline coming out of my body or anything. Like, and, um, and right away, you know, Jonathan looks at me and he goes, he's like, all right, man, well, um, well I think the first thing he said to me was, like, let's call the sheriff's department. And I was like, no, not, let, not, let's hold off right now. Like, maybe I can still finish this. And he goes, look at your left arm. And my left arm is, like, going the wrong way. And I was like, all right, I call the sheriff's department. <laughs> and so at that point, you know, Jonathan kind of kicked into gear. And, um, you know, he's such a great partner out there. But he kicked into gear, and, and uh, he pulled me into where he – well, he lowered me down until I was about, you know, parallel. And then – pulled me into the station, the belay station, which wasn't that far from where I was. Mm. And then um, at that point, we started assessing, like, how to get down and what to do and, and kind of really, like, basically assess the whole situation. Yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of jump in there real quick. Um, Alex mentioned that he was trying with a backpack. Um, we planned to bivy on, I think at the top of Pitch 17 is Sandy uh, Big Sandy. So we had kind of bivy gear. It was relatively light, but it was still kind of awkward with, you know, um, I don't know, 20 liter packs or something like that. Um, plus, plus two days of water um, and all that type of stuff. Um, when when Alex fell, um, I had thought, well, I, I recognized that um, he is about 20 or 30 feet um, to the right of me and about 15 feet above me. Um, so it, it took a little effort on his part, um, to kind of get back over to the, uh, to the belay anchor. Um, so once, once we got him over there, um, we definitely were talking about, um, you know, how do we get out of the situation? Um, so I knew that I didn't have service. Um, so we looked for Alex's phone once we decided that he couldn't walk down. Um, and we, uh, and I think that one of the takeaways here is it's always easier to turn off um, a rescue than to turn it on late. So that was kind of my mentality going into this. Um, but anyway, we I, I started looking uh, for Alex's phone and his pack for about 10 seconds. And then I just called 911 dispatch. Um, and then eventually uh, she pushed me over to Yosar. Um she asked me about my initial assessment, um, of, of which was, as Alex alluded to, an obvious compound fracture on the left wrist. 
Um, he also had a swollen and therefore potential uh, fracture on his left ankle. Um, at the time, we didn't perceive any head or spine injuries. He hadn't lost consciousness or anything, um, but we certainly needed to treat it for kind of a spine injury due to the length of the fall, which is, again, probably 60, 65 feet, something like that. Um, he was uncomfortable breathing at the time, which probably was due to the fractured ribs. Um, so with all that, um, you know, we both came to the conclusion that we weren't going to walk out. Um, so we did need a chopper. So, um, when we were on the phone with, uh, 911, uh, we, you know, stated that we did need a chopper. There was a little bit of pushback and, uh, you know, I, I hope professionally said that, uh, you know, Hey, I have, a little bit of experience on San Diego Mountain Rescue Team and, you know, my 12 years in the Navy. We're not walking out of here. Please give us a chopper now. Um, and they still, I mean, they were going to assess it. They basically, at that point, they dispatched the OSAR to, yeah. to, to meet us to assess. They still hadn't committed to a chopper yeah. because maybe OSAR could carry people out. They knew that I couldn't walk out at that point. I realized I couldn't walk out. Um, but they were still looking at, well, maybe we can carry them out you know, and depending on the situation or how bad it is. Uh, so, uh, but I am really grateful that Jonathan called right away. That is something that I would have not thought to do. I would have definitely been like, all right, let me get to the ground. Let me get situated. Let me get some Kool-Aid and like figure things out. Or it was, yeah. And then Jonathan was like, no, let's call him now. And I'm like, but we don't even know that we need assistance now. And looking back on that, that was a huge win for, for our situation because it still took them, you know, three and a half hours or, or maybe less, maybe three hours. Yeah, I, I had, well, looking through the timeline here, um, we estimate that we started climbing about 8.30, 8.40 was the fall, 8.50-ish was uh, the call to 911, and then um, I think we had Alex on deck uh, with me close behind at maybe 9.10 or so. Um, but, yeah, Yosar, um, Jack and his team at Yosar, I mean, big hats off, they they did the same hike that we took four plus hours on. They did it in two and a half or less. Um, yeah. I transferred Alex over to um, the anchor and then pulled the rope. Um, luckily, we weren't over halfway the rope because then we would, that would be a, another set of issues with ascending the rope and that would be painful. Um, and luckily, we weren't at pitch, what, 15, 16, 17, where uh, who knows what the retreat is straight down. So potentially, Yosar would have had to come get us from the top. Um, right. Anyway. Pitch, pitch three is, is is up there, but it's not it's not pitch 15. Right. It's ground level. We can get to the ground on one single repel. Yeah. And that, that was great knowing that. Um, so once I put Alex um, on the anchor, pulled the rope, um, and then I fixed the line – uh, we knew it was going to be a rope stretcher. Um, so I put, I left, uh, I retied Alex in with a figure eight, which I, I think this is one of my lessons learned, but um, I sh it probably should have been uh, maybe a locking beaner or two opposite and opposed locking beaners because he only had one arm to, you know, untie or really work. Yeah, I couldn't even untie. So when he lowered me down... Yeah. And then I got to the ground. Um, I barely, my feet were barely touching the ground. So at this point, communicating with John was a little hard too because I was, he couldn't really hear me well. Hmm. And he's like, "Are you down?" I'm like, "Well, kind of, but I can't. I won't. I mean, the, the rope stretching is so tight on that figure eight, and I have one hand. Even with two hands, it would have been difficult to untie that figure eight. So 
uh, I was trying to assess the situation, trying to, how am I going to get out of this dumb problem, really? And then um, at that point, I had the idea to take my harness off, which I thought was genius. I, I, think it's, <laughs> that, I think that was your only option. It really was. And so Jonathan could not give me any more slack, and I kept asking for it. And he, there was a little bit of a communication problem there with how high he was. Um, so I was just like, okay. So that kind of dawned on me at that point. I was able to slip out of my harness, which was kind of difficult looking back on it now because at this point my back was starting to seize up. wasn't really sure why. Now I know why. But uh, at that point, I didn't know why. And then, um, so I kind of got on, I had to kind of like fall over, untie my harness and then kind of fall over it. And then the rope itself was pulling the harness off me because there was so much stretch in the rope. And then it kind of just yanked it off my, my legs. So once we had Alex down, which was maybe 920 or so, um, I knew that, you know, the air temps outside were, were maybe 60 degrees, 65. Um, so I knew that, you know, it was my job to kind of care for him until uh, USR was on the scene. Um, so I had stolen two sleeping pads from um, another group that had left their bags down at the base, uh, and they weren't there. Um, but the two pads that we were going to bring up to Bibby were both uh, inflatable, so that wasn't going to work quite as well. So I went over, grabbed their two foam pads and a jug of their water, um, and immediately put him on the, the phone pads and put him in, I think, two sleeping bags and a puppy or two um, to try to keep him warm. Um, and I had, at that point, maybe three months prior, um, I was up with the rescue team on Mount Baldy, and it just had stuck in my mind that um, we had rescued a guy who broke his tip fib and he got he got cold so quickly, and it was forty or fifty degrees out. Um, I mean, shivering cold. So I I didn't want that you know to to happen again. Uh, so I started boiling water once once he was warm. Started uh, warming up water and putting it in his uh, pits and crotch until he was. He told me that I was overheating him, which, <laughs> which was okay with me. Um, and then next thing you know, uh, Yosar is on the scene, and again it. Took them two and a half hours or less. Uh, they administered an IV and some meds, and uh, the chopper wasn't too far behind. Um, the IVs and meds I had written down was about twelve fifteen, and then the chopper out. Um, the chopper arrived at about thirteen hundred. So you're up there for a while. Oh yeah, <laughs> and at that point, you know that's when your head starts spinning. That's when that's when the person that's hurt is. Because I didn't hit my head at all, so I was completely conscious of the whole thing. I wasn't unaware of the situation, so you know, reality starts creeping in. And at that point, I couldn't move my legs. I mean, I could feel my legs, mm. but I couldn't move my legs. I kept on asking Jonathan, like, "Hey, move my leg to my left," and then he would do it. I'm like, "This really hurt." But I couldn't feel it, mm. you know. And that's that's where the head games start coming in a lot, you know. Like, am I paralyzed? Like, did I just ruin my life right now? Like, and you start like really trying to like play the, you know, you're going over these scenarios in your head which isn't the best thing to do uh you know but you know one of the things that i learned when when all this was happening i was just so grateful that jonathan was so calm like he never lost his school he was very he was, he was almost like he was, i have we have videos on our instagram but he's just he's making jokes about oreo cookies and and i'm like over there freaking out and it's really interesting because it actually was helping so much for me to stay calm so we end up, we have like a few videos on our Instagram of us laughing at this, at, at this time. And it's a very serious time. I'm in quite a bit of pain, actually. Mm -hmm. 
And, but, you know, him staying so calm and, and not making it light, but helping lighten the situation uh, really did help me keep a clear head and be like, all right, whatever's coming, we can handle it. You know, I'm not going to die. That's, I'm, I know that now. I'm, I'm, I was in no death scenario. It was more of, am I paralyzed? How hurt am I? Can I walk again someday? So mm-hmm. that's where my head was spinning. But him staying calm, keeping it light and funny really did help me kind of work through that time period before the Yosar showed up. What other lessons were learned? What other things did you guys take out of this experience that you want to tell the listeners? Uh, one is, is kind of large, but it, it's ultimately no self-rescue techniques. Um, take a minute, think about the process. Um, when I lowered Alex, uh, I lowered him on a knot, which now I recognize that was going to be really hard to get out. So maybe, uh, again, lowering them on a, on a beaner. Um, but you know, that just taking time and knowing the process, uh, that can be applied to any situation. Um, because he had to shimmy out of his harness, if it wasn't an L1 vertebrae, um, shear, but instead some other type of injury closer to the spinal cord, you know, um, my actions could have, um, maybe, uh, further exacerbated or increased the extent of the injury. So, um, I feel like I got lucky with that one. Um, but you know, just thinking about the process, um, also perhaps, and this is probably pretty armchair quarterback ish, but perhaps an accompanied repel, um, would have been better. Um, you know, attaching him to my harness and I repel and all that type of stuff. Um, two was knowing fundamental first aid, um, and talking about it. So we, Stabilized Alex, got him off the ground, kept him warm, and were positive throughout um, the evolution. But um, once uh, Yosar showed up, they immediately sprung into action, and everything was great. But one of the things they – the very first thing that they did was took Alex's vitals. And I was kicking myself because I'm trained to do that, but I I didn't do that at all. It never crossed my mind. So – Luckily, he was conscious the whole time, but had he not been or had he, um, you know, lost consciousness at one point, I, you know, I, I would have nothing to show for it and, you know, no cause of um, that portion of the injury. I do have to say that it, it is interesting that you said that you were, you are trained in, um, and yeah, that minor medical care and to take vitals is one of the first things that you do and you know that, but you didn't do it in the scene. And that's really interesting because, um, yeah, when shit's hitting the fan, you just, your, your mind sometimes does go blank. You're, you're absolutely right. I and mean, that's like basic woofer stuff. Um, the third thing we kind of labeled humanity. Um, you know, I, so again, I stole two sleeping bags and a bunch of water from people that probably needed it. Um, once they got back down, who knows if they were going to bivy at the base another night. Um, but after Alex left, um, and USR left, um, those two climbers, um, returned back for their bags. And I told them the situation and they, it was awesome. They totally understood and said in very broken English, um, Something akin to uh, your friend gives them better use than us right now. And like, I just thought that was super rad. They could have been super pissed about it. Um, for uh, the power of touch. Oh, yeah. This was mine. Um, so when I was laying there uh, with Yosar there, um, it was just really interesting. I'm not really a touchy feely guy. And um, this guy, I, 
he came over and there was a whole there was six there were four four or five of them yeah. running around doing a whole bunch of stuff getting ready for the helicopter and assessing the situation and, and one guy just came over and put his hand uh, lightly like, on my chest my chest shoulder and, and I couldn't tell you I mean it's hard to explain but I, could, I it was just so comforting to have him touch me for some reason and I think for me what came and that's never happened in my life. I've been hurt a lot in my life and that's never happened before and um, it really to me was a testament of like our connection as humans it was really interesting it was like okay man we're in a tough situation you're a human I'm a human and we're gonna get out of this together and they, you know that I mean I may never see him again we're not friends like me and Jonathan like it was just basic humanity of, of them just taking care of me in a situation when he touched me it was just very comforting so then I was like really happy that I was happy I didn't say anything and uh, and, but Jonathan said he, he kind of watched it happen, but it was something that I would have never expected and something I would have never known without being in that situation. And I guess if I had any advice uh, to people that are in a tough situation like that, just make sure that you do do it. Just try it. Just put your hand on his shoulder or her shoulder or in some way touch them. And it really is very comforting when you're the one that's hurt to feel that connection. Just very, uh, it's almost overwhelming at the time. And, and I didn't know I needed it until he did it, right? And so until he touched me, I didn't really know that that would have been something that would have helped because mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I didn't ask anybody to touch me and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known to. So if you're the, if you see someone hair like, and just putting that, and it was a light touch and he's a big dude and I'm a big dude. It wasn't like, Not that big. it wasn't like anything <laughs> weird, but at the same time, it was so comforting and uh, I'll never forget that. Uh, so number five is strength and it's really that kind of mental strength is everything, you know, even if you. One side, 12A, which neither of us do, but, um, you know, you can be physically strong, but you need to be mentally strong in situations uh, like that. You know, it's it's staying calm and and being able to react to stuff. Um, and that's that's on both sides. That's the, you know, the caretaker and the patient. So we kind of fed off each other's calmness there, and it was really helpful uh, to be able to assess the situation and kind of move on. Uh, communication. Um our internal communication, uh, I, I think, was good. He was honest with me when there was a new, um, there was a new injury that came up, if, if you will. Uh, there was a new symptom, like, hey, you know, Jonathan, my back's starting to hurt. Oh, okay, well, you know, maybe we'll. Um, I don't wasn't able to necessarily treat it, but I was able to relay it to the uh, the Hasty team in USR so they could plan for that, and I think that's important. And you know, me looking back at the climbing side of it. Um, you know, as a leader, everyone listening to this podcast that leads knows this knows a situation like this. Maybe not as extreme, but you run into a situation where you're like, "Well, I can place here, but I, you know, I'm going to go a little farther because I don't have enough gear." Or I can place here, but I, you know, my situation was I could have placed on the left, but I was off route. Yes. So we all know what happens when you place off route. The road drag can be so problematic that it becomes more of a nuisance than the actual misplacement. And so I'm like, well, you know, I, I judged it obviously and I judged it incorrectly. And I'm six I'm six one. So for me to go fifteen feet, it's, it's not it's only a couple of body lengths really. So I get into the zone where I'm I was very used to running things out on easy ground and then I would sew something up if I felt insecure. And uh, looking back, obviously I made the wrong choice of running it out so hard and, and that's not a norm. I don't always go twenty five feet above my pro, but I can say that I've done it before. Sure. And I think a lot of climbers, if you look honestly at your climbing, but maybe maybe not, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of people would run it out on easy ground because you're like, oh, it's 
whatever was saved five six or five five, you just like ah, they ran out of the anchor, mm-hmm. and um, and mine wasn't quite that easy. But at the same time, I was never in a when I was when I fell, I was never nervous that I was going to fall. I wasn't in a spot where I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm totally like pumped out. I'm gonna fall. It was just like. I was 100% calm and confident in my movements. Right. My foot just blew or something happened and for, I went from completely calm to mayhem in two seconds. And that's, that's something that, has, you know, it's happened before on smaller scales, but you know, it's really interesting that I wasn't in a spot where I'm like, okay, I'm going to fall. You know, I'm, I'm pumped out. It's happening. It was just like calm, moving, five, eight, easy, breezy. Let's put some pro falling. And next thing I know, I'm, you know, I'm hanging upside down on, yeah. on the rope. Yeah, for for external communications, uh, I think a takeaway for us was knowing that um, even if your phone doesn't have service necessarily due to your carrier, but there's service out there, you can still make a 911 call. So um, a lot of folks I've talked to didn't know that, and I think it's a a good takeaway. Um, And then obviously a huge, you know, a big thanks to Jack and his USR team, as well as the docs at Fresno for um, putting Alex back together. He uh, he probably won't mention it, but uh, last weekend, what did you do last weekend? I finished a, a half Ironman. Yeah, triathlon. So he he's he's fully recovered. He's he's ready to get back on the horse. One last you know kind of closing comment was, um, and Alex and I have talked about this quite a bit, but you know, was it preventable? Um, the fall probably unlikely because um, either his foot slipped or the the rock shifted. Um, but the extent of the injuries, um, you know, Alex mentioned before that you know consider putting a little bit more protection in even over easy ground. Uh, what I call the ground game, um, like the the medical assessment, all that type of stuff. Um, I would you know again a little bit less movement, more vitals. Uh, so to show stability over time if, if need be. Um, but, you know, ultimately the response uh, from the Yosemite search and rescue team and all those folks involved um, was super timely and uh, much appreciated. For peace of mind, if you're wondering if the other climbers ever got their stuff back, they did. Um, Jonathan actually went to the gear store, bought him two new pads, a six pack of beer and a pizza, headed to camp four, found the guys, and graciously said thank you with with some awesome gifts. So I'd like to take this opportunity to provide you listeners with three important pieces about 911 calls in remote areas. Because even if your cell phone doesn't show any bars, it's it's still worth attempting a 911 emergency call in remote areas. Number one, all carriers are required to provide free 911 service and Another carrier might be able to connect your call even if your carrier doesn't have service in that area. Two, an attempted 911 call may leave digital quote-unquote breadcrumbs of time, date, and location, which searchers can then access and use even if your call never connects. And three, if you're connected, immediately tell the emergency operator your location and your phone number in case you get disconnected. And if you get disconnected and no one calls you back, try calling them again. Thank you, Yosar. Thank you, Alex and Jonathan, for being on the show and sharing your story. Thank you to Mammut for being the headlining sponsor. Thank you to Gnarly Nutrition for sponsoring this episode. 
And thank you to the Colorado Hour Bound School and Health IQ for being contributing sponsors. The Colorado Hour Bound School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 50 years. They offer wilderness expeditions in Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Alaska, and even Ecuador. Um, These courses range in 8 to 81 days in length for ages 12 plus and include backpacking, mountaineering, canyoneering, rafting, and rock climbing. Visit www.cobs.org to plan your next adventure. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health conscious people like us. Climbers, alpinists, skiers, runners, cyclists, strength trainers, and more. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com slash sharp, or mention the promo code sharp when you talk to a health IQ agent. And remember, play hard and be smart.